0: Hey there, Next real listeners, this is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with movies we like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey. And now let's get back to the show.
1: That reminds me,
0: we should give the merch store a shout-out. Buying shirts from the slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs.
1: Hey everybody, it's Pete. There's a little bit of exclamatory profanity in this episode. If you're listening in the car, you've got little ears around you somewhere. You may want to press pause and come back and catch up with this episode later. Welcome to the
0: Next real Speakeasy on RashPixel.fm. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. I'm Pete Wright. Each month on the Next real Speakeasy, we invite a guest from the industry to join us. And instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about them. We'd like to welcome our guest to this month's show, Jason Crothers. Like most kids, Jason grew up loving movies. Over time, his love of watching movies inspired the idea to make movies. But he didn't know anyone who worked in the industry and had no idea where to even start. So, he took a Super 8 class at a community college in Arizona, where he was living at the time. And after seeing some of his first films, his instructor recommended he enroll in their cinematography course. As soon as he picked up a light meter, things just clicked. The imagery in films like Seven had a visceral impact on him, so moving in that direction was a natural fit. Jason continued his education at Columbia College in Chicago and the American Film Institute. After graduation, he jumped into the world of shooting low-budget features, shooting nearly two dozen, including Amnesiac, directed by Michael Polish, starring Kate Bosworth and Wes Bentley, and Coldwater, a festival hit that found Jason's cinematography highlighted by critics and one of our trailer picks. In 2013, Jason joined the Chicago Fire second unit team during seasons two and three, as well as serving as director of photography for several episodes. Since then, he's served as first unit director of photography of the hit series, now in its fifth season. Welcome to the show, Jason. Hi. Hey, hey. Yay! Yay, I'm finally here.
1: You know what's awesome? I I feel like we're collecting a catalog, Andy, of guests that uh we've been fans of for a long time they, that you were actually a trailer pick for us on the show some years ago and now you're here talking to us i'm so excited what trailer, about that. What trailer was that for cold water oh wow i had no idea hey i'm honored hey check that out big fans big fans <laughs> Oh, awesome yeah. thank you not only that you picked uh, a hell of a movie
2: yeah it's it's funny right. at first you know it's like i was like oh that's easy because uh like the movie that got me into cinematography was oh, yes. seven i was like seven it's like yeah we've already done fincher it's like okay not a problem aliens <laughs> i can quote that movie oh we've already done that okay and so i started looking through the list and i was like wow oh, you guys you guys are nailing you guys are nailing all my favorites which is a good thing and i was like well what else could it be And i was like it, like a ton of bricks i was like we oh, should of course heat like that's a that's a huge one for me and scrolling Absolutely. through, I was like, all right, I don't see that on there. I'm going to roll the dice. So.
0: Well, and it's funny because, you know, we've done a series of heist films. And after you said Heat, Pete and I were like, why did we not ever pick how that for you, a heist you series? You <laughs> heat
1: in doing heist
0: films?
1: You know, and it's so funny because I, I can think back. I have these visceral memories of the show over the last four years where Andy and I have mentioned how much of, uh, how much uh, how great fans we are of Heat. And that we've never worked it into the catalog is really frustrating.
2: That's shocking, but I'm gonna take it as a win because it means we get to talk about it today. He's here. I can feel it. You search for the scent of your prey, and then you hunt them down. That's the only thing you're committed to. It keeps me sharp, on the
1: edge, where I gotta be want to be making moves on the street. Allow nothing to be in your life
0: that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner.
2: You know, my life's a disaster, zone Because I spend all my time chasing guys like you
0: around the block. I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. Yeah, Heat is just a spectacular film, and Michael Mann is certainly the person to make it. What is it about... Uh, this film that uh, that you connect to so well aside from the fact that it's just such an amazing movie see
2: now that i'm so excited to talk about it i'm, I'm like where do i start I'm like a i'm like a dog who's too excited like i don't know where do we go <laughs> i'm outside for the first time where do we go everything smells so great um i mean I just everything about them i mean you've got you've got an absolutely brilliant cast and you've got people that are like insanely talented in comparatively small roles so like in a movie that, you know, Hey, this role, you know, this is a, they're in four scenes in this almost three hour movie. So we put almost anybody in here. You've got some amazing actors taking these small roles. So the entire cast is spectacular. You've got, obviously you've got Pacino and De Niro, uh, who, you know, the entire movie is a fundamentally kind of about their relationship and they spend so little time on screen together, but you're kind of, you've got that great buildup to that moment and it doesn't disappoint. Um, The soundtrack is great. The cinematography is brilliant. And it's just kind of, the thing that I've always really respected about it is it's it's this sprawling, it really is a sprawling kind of epic crime drama set against Los Angeles. But it's actually a very small, intimate movie about, I mean, if you want to get, you want to narrow it down, it's about two men, but it's really more about, you know, these, uh, the handful of lives and how they're impacted by all these different choices. So for me, I'm a huge fan. Part largely, I think, because it's uh, a very small, intimate story about a handful of people set against this very, very big backdrop.
0: And and it's it's so much like what what Michael Mann really loves to do in his films. It's kind of that. The how people's working lives affect their uh, their personal lives, yeah, and kind of that balance that people have between the two, and the struggle people have between the two, and and trying to make both of them work when they're really passionate about something,
2: or the lack of balance. I mean, I think that's the other thing is is, is in the attempt to balance it. If you're really passionate about something I- about your work, you know, in this case, you know, these men going right, like, we're passionate about our work, and they try to balance their work and their lives. And I think at a certain point, they kind of realize like, hey. Our work is our lives, so we keep trying to balance going, how do we get to have both when the real out when the reality is well, the thing that you, your work is also the thing that you love, so that is your life. You just have to learn to accept it.
1: You know, it's 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 funny. Like, I found myself thinking as I'm watching this, Michael Mann, it feels like every one of these films, you know, from Thief to Manhunter to Heat to Insider, Collateral, Miami Vice, Public Enemies, even the disastrous Black Hat, eventually we're all <laughs> going to be able to look back on these movies as essentially biopics of Michael Mann himself. <laughs> That's very funny. It's.
2: I mean, or to a certain extent, even, I mean, you want to get more stuff for further, even Last Mohicans, sort of the same thing too. Yeah, you're it's right. It's the same man. idea. It's less, there it's less of work and life and there it's more of, of like a, a cultural identity. But it's the same, it's the same basic, it's the same exact themes in all those other movies.
0: Right, where does he fit into?
2: Maybe right. this is just a cry for help. Maybe we should it, all it, go to
1: Michael Mann <laughs> and give him a hug. He needs an intervention. <laughs> because,
0: <laughs> I, I think it's actually good that he's making these crime films, because otherwise he might be one of these criminals. <laughs>
1: this is an outlet. That's what it it's is.
2: You, you find out in reality, like, you know, he's uh, Wayne Grow, and Keith is actually modeled after him, and <laughs> uh, he's going out late at night and beating underage prostitutes in downtown Los Angeles. He's like, listen, that's my therapy. Don't judge me. Don't that's judge it. me. <laughs>
1: It's awful, <laughs> awful. But everybody needs an outlet. Is that what you say in this case? It's terrible.
2: Maybe that's what he said. Maybe heat is a
1: cry for help. Maybe it's that's what he's saying. It's a cry for help. Absolutely. It's interesting. I'd forgotten just how much of this was inspired uh, by uh, the true story. Criminal Neil Macaulay killed by one of man's friends. Uh, uh, Chicago detective Charlie Adamson uh, Mm -hmm. back in the 60s. And it was one of these relationships that inspired this movie that these are two men, that these are ideologically opposed guys, and yet they had this sort of respect and, and, you know, as as has been said, fondness of one another uh, in spite of their position's Related to the law, uh, and man has said, you know, they had a kind of intimacy that only strangers can have, and, yeah. and and I think that's such a fascinating. It's one of the things that the film does so well that this is a uh, a relationship of great mutual respect, and it's carried off so beautifully by Pacino and De Niro, uh, and and it's such a well earned. Uh, point when they meet for the first time on screen that that we know that Pacino and de Niro are on screen for the first time together yeah. is epic in itself, so the fact that they actually pulled it off and and made it an earned part of this of this story uh, it's it 's just explosive for me
2: i mean for me we 're going to jump right to the end of the movie for a second, but I mean on that point the the end of the movie when you know, after Pacino shot De Niro and they're just, they're out there in the middle of, of, you know, the LAX fields um, together, you know, just like they take each other's hands for me. I kind of feel like that, that wraps up the whole movie of we've been chasing each other. This cat and mouse game. We're you're ruining my life. I'm ruining your life. We've just been shooting at each other. All right, fine. You won. And we're going to have, like you said, this, like that intimacy of strangers of, as much as we're strangers, we're so similarly, we're so disturbingly similar and alike that uh, if I'm going to lie out here dying because you shot me, somehow that seems fitting and I'm going to have this final moment with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, the end of the movie is so good. Like that moment at the end, like they, they just kind of grab hands and there's nothing else said. You're like, well, what else? There's no point of a big monologue. Like, what are we going to say now at this point? It's just great.
0: It's so good, and I found it so interesting that that image was the first image that Michael Mann had in his head when he kind of came up with this whole story. He he got that image in his head, and he ended up kind of crafting the entire story backwards from that moment. Oh, that's really
2: interesting. Well, yeah, because the last the last shot is just that wide shot, like the two of them their silhouettes against the uh, against against the skyline, and it just sits there. There's no crane. There's no big dolly. There's no there's nothing dressing it up because it's like, all right, this is the movie. These two guys lying out, you know, these two guys standing there. One of them waiting for the one to die, and they're having this really intimate moment. Uh, and they're essential, and for all intents and purposes, they're enemies, but they're not. It's yeah, that image kind of kind of symbolizes the whole movie.
1: Yeah, and and I, am, I you know, I don't even see them as enemies at that point, right? They're competitors. That's what I mean. He, that's
2: what I'm saying. In, on paper, these they're the like they should be enemies. On, yeah, on paper, cause... like his job is to avoid getting caught. His job is to try to catch him, so on paper they should be enemies. But at that moment, it's it's interesting. In in the, the diner scene, Pacino makes a, a reference. You know, he uses the word brother, and it's it's thrown away as you know, like friend, pal, whatever. But I, I, for me, it's always struck me. It's a really interesting choice of words. Cause I'm like, you guys really are akin to being brothers more than anything. You guys just happen to be in completely different ideologies.
0: That's a great point. It's, it's actually like some of those crime films where other filmmakers have told a story where it is two brothers and they've kind of taken each side of the law and it has that same sort of vibe. It's so hard for other people in this film to really understand the level they're at and the whole, the whole reality that they set for themselves and the world that they create. But these two guys totally understand each other. They're both at the top of their uh, respective career path. They they both are are so good that they're really kind of right there. And these guys, they they recognize that in each other. And even though it is one of those things where it's like, it, you know, next time we meet, I'm going to be gunning for you. You're going to be gunning for me. But they they still have that respect.
2: Absolutely. I mean, or even there's there's a scene at, uh, uh, under the bridge with. Um... Uh with De Niro and uh John voight Yes, thank you. And he's taught he makes a comment about, you know, hey, he you know, he said he respects you. Yeah. You know, like, all right, there's there's a moment that we were like, and it's not he's not shining them on. It's like, yeah, there is. There's respect of like, hey, these guys are really good. You are really good. You are you have you run a great crew, you're excellent at what you do. To a certain extent, I think there's an enjoyment factor of listen, if I'm gonna be you know, if I'm gonna be driving my third marriage into the ground and out all night and ruining myself, hunting somebody, I want it to be somebody that's worth my time and not some asshole or some idiot that's gonna make it too easy. Like I want it to be I want it to be worth my time and my talent.
1: Yeah, and it's a, that the conversation he has with Justine in the hospital too. After they've come to terms with the fact that there is there is no um, there's no hope for their marriage, and mm. it's it, they come to this sort of sober reckoning through the attempted suicide of of her daughter. That uh, there's there's no way they can go on as partners because of who he is, because of of his his drive uh, to to actually be the ideological crime fighter. Uh, I find that such a a powerful and interesting to me because it is, emotionless that scene together like they're yeah. it, it's so sort of calculated uh and yet so approachable it doesn't feel like i'm i'm distanced as an audience member what's so interesting for me as we're talking about these archetypes and and one of the things i think man as a director is so good at as sort of this best-in-class crime director is that he approaches these archetypes these white hat black hat cop robber good evil uh, kind of pairings uh with such a a delicateness that at the end of the film, I feel like I'm the major change character in the film, right? That that I'm a participant here, and I have to choose in a very complex equation of good versus evil what I believe is good and bad between two characters that are neither completely good or bad, in my view. And Andy made a a point in the the pre-show to me about that how interesting it is that we're drawn to Macaulay despite the fact that he's a complete sociopath. How good does that make Michael Mann? It's,
2: I mean, he also, there's 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 two great scenes that juxtapose themselves. When De Niro and his whole crew are at dinner, you know, they're at a very nice restaurant. They've got their kids, you know, some of them have their kids there and they're all there with their dates and they're having a good time. And it's very refined. And it's a very nice restaurant, a very uh, polite and upper class. And then he juxtaposes it with All the cops are out with with their wives and girlfriends, et cetera, et cetera, and they're drinking too much and they're telling stupid stories and they're kind of making fools of themselves. And for me, it's it's such a subtle thing, but I was like, "That's so great because we're kind of ingrained to go." The cops are the good guys. The you know the robbers are the bad guys. There's certain there's certain expectations you have. And you're watching, you're like, well, wait a second. The, the robbers seem to be really nice. The robbers seem to be, murdering robbers seem to be really nice people and have families. And this all seems great. And all oh, the cops are over here that seem like a, kind of a couple of schlubs. And they're drinking too much. <laughs> they're making fools of themselves. But it is, it's that balance constantly of, I know you're a murderer. I know you're a thief. I know that you're a terrible human being. But the cops over here, they're not much better because they're also technically murderers uh and they're abusive of their position of powers um you know and, and it's come out recently you know uh pacino was saying oh it never really adre- is addressed in the movie but the backstory is he's got a coke problem so that explains a lot of the performance choices where like he's coked out for half the movie right they're like the there are really the the label of you know good guy bad guy only I think goes so far as you know, cop and robber, and then beyond that, you're like, yeah. After that, it's just a really broad stroke of gray.
0: But I think he does it so well here because of this this blend of character and the the length of the story. I mean, it's a it's a nearly three hour film. Yeah, we get to know so many different people. There are so many different threads that he weaves through here, and we see such a, a wide swath. Of the types of people in this world, you know whether it's it's somebody who's just uh, been released and he's on parole and he's trying everything he can to make it straight, but everybody is pushing him down and it's putting him into a position where it's it's easier to go back into the life of crime, or somebody like Chris and his and his relationship with his wife, where he's you know he's uh, getting lots of money, but he's also has a horrible gambling problem and he's blowing everything. And, and you get such an interesting painting of just the way that people live, uh, not, not so much in the cop side other than Pacino, but you still kind of get uh, this, this wide, uh, you know, portrayal of a variety of characters, which I think man does so well here.
2: For me, I mean, I think for me, actually, one of the most telling scenes for me in the movie, and it's, it's again, it's sort of a throwaway scene, but for Macaulay, like kind of a, a, a good reference for who and what Macaulay all about is uh, when he he, tra- he follows Charlene uh, Ashley Judd's character to the hotel and kind of bursts through the door uh, after she's had the affair with uh, Hank Azaria's character you know she he's listened to all this and he's like no listen what I need from you is is you need to give my guy into the shot and if he fucks up um, you know what He's he, you're done and I'll set you up you get to keep your kid i watching that scene again because I watched it earlier this the movie earlier this week just kind of refreshed my memory I was like it's Equal parts like abusive relationship boyfriend, but also oddly noble of, I need you to give somebody of my crew one more shot, but if he fucks up, you know what? Then it's on him, and I'll make right by it, and I'll take care of you. It's so psychotic, but it's guided by such a specific, uh, I think, in- sincerely good intentions. Again, it's such a small scene, but it's I, f- I feel like it's so indicative of a... Of I guess the complexities of Macaulay's character.
1: Oh, yes, because he's the aspirational character here. As the criminal, he's the one who is getting his emo- emotional life in order. He's finding a relationship. He's looking forward to settling down and getting out. And, and all of these things are driving him toward the, the ideological good right? Yeah. He's, what he's doing practically to get there is something that we can judge as bad. And yeah. But but why he's doing it, his intention is so, Uh, it, it's sort of, it's the purity of the film. And I think that's fascinating. His
0: delineation of his career path is so set, you know, this whole mindset, you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to be able to dump everything in 30 seconds. But the fact that he's going in there and kind of creating this relationship world for Chris so that Chris can kind of I guess, stay in his own good mindset as he continues working. I I found that really interesting in that, uh, in that scene.
2: Yeah. That's what I'm saying is like, he, he recognizes that, you know, he recognizes that Chris needs this stability for in his life. That's what he needs. So I'm going to help, I'm going to help facilitate that because, you know, be a good person. He's my friend and I want to take care of him, make him happy. Being the, the boss of this crew, I need his head in the game. Again, it's also interesting the whole idea, that, that idea of you know being able to walk away in thirty seconds. I'm always fascinated by. It. At the end of the movie, he comes walking out of the hotel, sees Hannah coming down at him, and he's you know he's looking at he's looking at the girl in the car. And I'm as an audience member, you know, I'm yelling at the TV. I'm like, you need to run! Like, what was all <laughs> this? All this talk about walking away in thirty seconds, and you're lingering. And for God's sake start running like this is when you this is when you start like this is the heat coming quite literally you've been building this whole thing up and he can't do it it's that that delay of do i stick around do i run do i stay do i go um and it's the the fact that he he now has something he's connected to he can't walk away in 30 seconds i feel like ultimately that's kind of what the undoing is because. Yeah, you know, if, he, if he'd turn, you know, that fire truck pulls up, and like that was his opportunity to just cut and run, and he didn't.
0: He's welcomed that uh, emotional connection into his life. I mean, it's like in that scene you were talking about earlier, the restaurant scene where all the gangsters or all the the robbers are all dining together. Everybody has a partner except for him. Yeah, and, and that so he goes and calls Edie and reconnects with her, and and he really finally allows that to build in his life. And you can see that by it's interesting because he allows that emotion to kind of uh, become a part of his life. But by doing so, it in a way becomes his undoing because that triggers him to then when he gets the call from Nate that, hey, I found Wangro, he's in this hotel room, but you know, you're not going to care at all, right? And he, he agrees with him. But now that he's kind of let that emotion into his life it's like that thing just eats away at him i think at the beginning of the film before he had met edie if he had gotten that call and he knew he was you know the heat was on to him he probably would have just let wayne grow go but i think there's something about him at the end and the way that he's changed now that when he gets that call from nate he just can't let it go anymore and he has to go after wayne grow now and it really became his undoing.
2: Yeah, because I think it's also to me. I always took it as is that moment of of closure of I'm going to get on a plane with Edie. We're going to take off, and I'm done. My whole life, I'm going to leave it behind me. I've got closure on everything. It's done, and it becomes that moment of if I can't if Langrow's still walking around, there's there, there's a loose end I didn't tie up, and I can't fully walk away until that's done. You know, until he meets Edie, he doesn't have anybody in his life. Um, yeah. So it's interesting that idea of. This is the 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 mantra that I live my life by. But I've never had to put it into practice. Like you don't ever see him, you know, he keeps talking about it, but he just built a lifestyle where he doesn't really have he doesn't have anything he really is gonna really walk away from. And so when he gets in when he brings Edie into his life and suddenly goes, All right, well now I've got that relationship. Now I have somebody that I have to walk away from. Suddenly it's a, it's a lot harder to do it than it is to, to, to walk around saying it.
0: They even have that conversation, the exact same conversation before they go into the bank heist, you know, because they realize that, you know, they, there's more now they're being watched and all this sort of stuff. And he has the conversation. We should just walk away. Yeah. But but, you know, I want in because, of, you know, the, the the risk is still it's higher, but the reward is still greater. But he still goes into it. And, and it's like he's never been able to kind of let go of something.
2: You know, obviously Chris says yes, because Chris is going, I need money or my wife is going to leave me. So, you know, we've got this, we've got this $12 million bank job. So yeah, the risk is worth it to me. Uh, Trito feels like a character who's like, Hey, I'm just kind of along for the ride and I don't really want to have to make decisions. So I don't let somebody else do it. It's really interesting. Macaulay keeps saying, you know, like, Hey, there's the heat. We should walk away and keeps finding reasons not to do it.
1: <laughs> right. It's it's interesting when you look at Mann as a screenwriter. He re- obviously wrote the script, and uh, specifically to this issue, and the the some of the arc archetypes that we're talking about that he builds into the script. He's kind of an interesting screenwriter, and I wonder if you guys could comment on this. So I'm going to read a couple of passages uh, from the screenplay with intention to talk about character development and the hand that man puts into backstory that we that never really come out in what they show us on screen. This is the very first page of the script, exterior Cedar sinai wide day. Uh, Neil McCauley and a nurse get off a bus. Uh, Neil carries a paper bag and wears white pants like a hospital attendant. Neil is is an ice-cold professional, very big, very tough. At 42, his short black hair is graying. He spent eight years in McNeil and three in San Quentin. He got out and hit the street in 1987. Four of the McNeil years were spent in the hole. Neil's voice is street, but his language is precise like an engineer's. He's very careful and very good. He runs a professional crew that pulls down Highline high-number scores, and does it anyway, the score has to be taken down. If it if on the prowl, a burglary, that's fine. If they do have to go in strong-armed, that's fine, too. And if you get in their way, that's got to be your problem. His lifestyle is obsessively functional. There's no steady woman or any encumbrance. Neil McCauley keeps it so there's nothing he couldn't awa- walk away from in 30 seconds flat. That's how we meet Neil in the script. Chris Scheherlis is on the second page. Chris wears a hard hat over a Mongol cut Levi's black boots and sleeveless sweatshirt and carries on one shoulder a 150 pound red Milwaukee Tool Company case. Looks like a construction worker by day who by night hits L.A.'s slams, jams, and raves. He's 29 from Austin, Texas. Chris is also a Highline pro, a boxman who knows five ways to open any safe made. This kind of detail comes with every uh, character in the film. And when you hear the actors talk about working with men, the level of detail that they put into developing backstory that's never directly conveyed on screen is significant. Uh, what do you think about his work as a screenwriter uh, and and what it actually brings to screen in these characters? I'm
2: not surprised. It's interesting. I've never read the screenplay for Heat, but hearing that, it's not surprising because that kind of, I feel like that kind of attention to detail in, in the descriptions and the setup of things comes across in the detail in the performances by everybody and also the detail, I mean, just all the details of the movie, you know, the details of production design, the details of the reality of how certain things work. There's an enormous amount of authenticity. I feel like in all of his movies, like you've, you very, you very rarely feel like you're watching a movie or you very rarely feel like you're watching actors portray characters. Um, he creates, it's not just performance, but I think he creates environments And to a certain extent, you know, it really is kind of world building of of authenticity of these different, of this world of police and of criminals, those details, although a lot of them, I mean, some of them are addressed in the movie very briefly, but even if it wasn't, I think all that kind of stuff comes across on screen through performance kind of related to this, but I remember watching some, um, some behind the scenes thing with, uh, about Miami Vice, um, and somebody on the behind the scenes was talking about, you know, they were scouting in Havana or something. um, And Michael Mann pointed across the street at a, a car and said, Oh, I love that car. We should have that car drive by in the background for this scene. And the guy said, it wasn't, it wasn't, Oh, I want a car like that. It was, I want that specific car that I'm pointing at. So let's go find out how to get that car because that's the car that belongs on the street driving by. And it's that attention to detail that I think, uh, comes through on screen, uh, that, that he makes his movies work so well.
0: and I think it's it is that uh, that attention to detail that that I think is just intrinsically in his blood, whether it's as he's writing the script or as he's directing the film or even, you know, as he's kind of watching the edit unfold and and seeing how the story's working. I think he really just taps into just every every little detail. He talks about how there's uh, like when they were location scouting for this film, they they were looking for the um, location where. Uh, where Hannah um, comes in and examines the uh, the crime scene when they find the dead the the, the dead prostitute, the young mm-hmm. girl. And he says, oh, yeah, and, and see, there's that dead bird floating in the pool. That bird, uh, when we scouted the location, there was a dead bird floating in the pool. And it's like, that's such an interesting thing to just see sitting like that. And so when they came back, um, he had his, his art department put a fake dead bird in the pool so that he could have that. And it's just in the corner of the shot, just for a, a few fleeting seconds. But it's there. Yeah. And those are the things that he puts in. Like you said, it's the world building, the way that he creates this for us.
2: And I, I mean, and that's also so great because that attention to detail is, it's interesting because that attention to detail, it's not for me, I feel like it's not just for the audience. It's not just for the audience of what do you see on screen? Because like you said, like a dead bird floating in a pool, it's there in in one wide shot, almost nobody's ever going to pick up on that detail. But it's that attention to detail, that world building that creates an environment for the actors so that it, it you as an actor, I feel like you you walk into that environment and go, this is not a set, this is not a place that we just showed up. And we're going to point some cameras at. This becomes a, a real visceral, living three hundred sixty degree environment that now, as a character, I can inhabit. And I think not. So it's not just for the audience. and the authenticity that shows up on screen. But I feel like a big part of that also is is just creating an environment uh, of authenticity for the actors as well. Because the, the I think the more artifice you can strip away from, from the environment of a set, the more freedom you give to an actor and the more responsibility you give to an actor of, hey, we've given you a world, so you just get to inhabit it now and, and we're going to watch to see what happens.
0: Going back to locations, you know, he had his locations department, uh, scour LA, uh, you know, so much of LA has been shot in so many films, but he, uh, and this film had like over a hundred locations is what I heard. And he had his team find locations that nobody had ever seen before. I think in the over a hundred locations, fewer than 10 of them had been filmed before. And I think that just speaks to, again, that kind of the detail and, and creating this world.
2: No, absolutely. I've, I, I live, you know, I'm in Chicago now on my, on my current show, but uh, before I came out here for the show, you know, I've been in LA for 10 years um, and watching heat. I'm still watching it. I'm like, other than, other than a handful of scenes, I'm like, I have no idea where that even is. I'm watching the movie. I'm like, I could not begin to tell you where that might even be in Los Angeles. I know I'm in Los Angeles. I know this movie is clearly like the architecture, the vibe, like everything about the movie screams Los Angeles. But yeah, there's locations I'm like, I've lived there for a decade and I've shot all over LA and I'm like, I've, I have no idea where that is in LA, but it's beautiful. I wish I could find it.
1: One of the things we like to, to do uh, on this show is try and find that sort of uh, thematic connection between the first shot and the last shot of a film. I think this one, you've already talked about the importance of the last shot, particularly the importance, as Andy said, that the first image that man had in his head that that informed the entire script. But how do we connect the very first shot and the first image we see with, with the last?
0: And the first shot in this one is that that smoky night train yard as the train kind of is pulling in. Really, bringing, bringing Macaulay into the into this story.
2: It's interesting that that very first image um, and the, and that type of image pops up throughout the whole movie. Um, that idea of you know, that that dark kind of that dark skyline, um, and there's some kind of piece of architecture or structure or or an industrial thing of some sort. Uh, there's a lot of industry in the movie. Um, that idea of like an industrial piece of architecture. Kind of jutting up against the skyline at night, without any other people around it. Like that first shot is is really about architecture and machines, and there's no people. It's very lonely. Um, and the same thing at the end of the movie. You know, if you took the very last frame of the two of them juxtaposed against, again, juxtaposed against a skyline surrounded by a lot of kind of industrial, you know, lights and those giant containers out in the field near LAX. Uh, if you took Hannah and Macaulay out of that shot, it would be thematically, I think, the same thing as the opening shot. I mean, so if you, if you take that idea, you know, expand upon it, it is, the movie is, everybody in the movie is, to a certain extent, pretty lonely. You know, Hannah is in a marriage, but it, you know, they mentioned it's his third marriage, you know, and it's not a good marriage. You know, Macaulay is not married, you know, and the person that, you know, he gets eating his life at some point but not really because she doesn't know anything about him really because he's lying to her. Chris it's like, great, I'm married with a kid uh, and I'm constantly in fear of her leaving. Like the whole movie is everybody's pretty damn lonely in this city. Um, and as much as they keep trying to make connections, they're all missed connections. They're all kind of, you know, everyone keeps kind of stru- struggling and reaching and no one's really getting any of the, the, the type of connection or relationship they want primarily because everybody has is making other choices that fundamentally go against those connections. It's interesting. I never thought about... I actually never thought about... I'm kind of rambling on now, but I never thought about how the uh, the opening shot and the end shot, how... Uh, actually how similar they are to each
1: other. Well, and I think that gets to exactly... It's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it right now, because you were just talking about kind of the locations, the fact that they were so unfamiliar. And the locations in, in the first and last shot for me are... They, they're they sort of alien, right? They're they are kind of, this is a place that is familiar to me, but I am distanced from it because I, I, I get a train station. I get that, you know, it's LA, but I've never seen it. I get that we're, we're in an airport in the last shot, but it's a part of an airport that I rarely see and have never been personally so again it's that sort of i i'm placed there but i'm distanced from it and that's kind of the whole thing from the for the the whole theme of the film is is putting me in a space that is that is unfamiliar yet familiar all at the same time and i think it's it it works really well i mean i,
2: I agree absolutely but i think you take it even one step further of the the reason they're unfamiliar to you is because they're, they're places that like you said it's a train line it's it's part of LAX. But they're, they're the parts of the train line, they're the parts of LAX that very few people ever go to. Like there's a very small percent, a very small specific group of people that ever go to those spot, like that spot in the train line or that spot at LAX. Um, so they are, they're, they're kind of away from the mainstream, they're, away, they're kind of isolated. Very few people go out there. And the people that go out there are out there to do a specific job that's, again, kind of lonely. So I think that's a big part of it is is a lot of the locations you're seeing in the movie are, these are places that the reason they feel alien is because very few people have to come out here. And the people that do come out here for a specific reason to do a job and then they leave. So they're very lonely places because of that.
1: You mentioned earlier there's a lot of industry in the film, and one of the things I think is so interesting about just the presentation of it is that uh, this is showing me Los Angeles um, almost as if it's trying to show me Los Angeles as it is, right? This is a bank in Los Angeles. This is a refinery in Los Angeles. These are the things that happen in Los Angeles, not the Los Angeles that we see with the lights and the glamour and the man's Chinese theater, and it's it's this is Los Angeles that, that is not encumbered by Hollywood.
2: Heat is never going to be a movie for tourism. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. There's no, like, there's no Santa Monica pier. There's no beach, you know, there's, there's no Hollywood Boulevard. There's no Santa Monica. Like, um, yeah, it's a watching it is, you know, again, cause you know, I first moved to LA. Um, yeah, it's like, Oh, it's beaches, you know, man, Chinese theater and celebrities on every corner. And after living there just for a few months, you know, I lived in, I lived in Hollywood uh, when I first moved there and I was like, wow, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of darkness and a lot of ugliness to Los (laughs) Angeles and watching Heat again. I was like, yeah, this is, there's a lot of that movie. I'm like, that's, that's, that's a really, that's a very fair representation of a lot of parts of LA. And there is, you know, as much as LA is, it can be and is a beautiful city. There's a lot of ugliness in LA
0: as well. And as much as LA, uh, you know, makes up so much of the world here, obviously we've got an incredible cast of people here uh, that really uh, lend to it. I mean, just reading through the list: Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Val Kilmer, Diane Venora, John Voigt, Tom Sizemore, Michael T. Williamson, Ashley Judd, Amy Brennaman, Natalie Portman. I mean, the list just goes on and on. There are so many people in this movie and they are all doing just great things here. Right out of the gate, I think obviously Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, those are two of the draws for uh, Michael Mann when he started putting this together. And he, he felt that those two guys were those two parts. He uh, went after them and they both were interested. So I think he got exactly who he wanted for his two leads.
2: I mean, they're, also keep in mind, kind of going down that list. You know, Don't forget, you've also got uh, uh, Tom Noonan does, you know, get in, um, uh, Henry Rollins, like like, out of nowhere. Like I actually had to pause and I was like, Holy shit. I forgot Henry Rollins is in this movie. (laughs) Like the entire, like that's what I was saying earlier is every, like every single role in this movie has been, is filled with, with one really talented, really interesting casting choice after the other. That also just bolsters the world between, between Pacino and De Niro as well, because, they're surrounded by great other great people. So you've got this, you know, it's like obviously they're the headliners of this cast, but they're, you know, the, the people around them supporting them are the same thing, all kind of at the top of their game.
1: Well, I mean, at some point you have to step back and ask yourself, why wasn't Heat the catalyst for Tone Loke's movie career? <laughs> <laughs> he was so funky, so funky.
2: The world will never know. The
1: world oh, will never know. So there is an alternate universe in which Tone Loke. Actually, is Vince Hanna, and I'd like to live you know, in that <laughs> room just for a little bit.
2: You know, next year they're coming out with a new uh, a new restoration of
1: Heat. I actually think they did face replacement and tone. Is- <laughs> oh, I'm
2: I'm so sad that's not true. Oh, I'm so sad that's not true. I'm wondering though, there might be time to start like an online petition to do a uh, like a behind the scenes <laughs> documentary about uh, why was not tone. Like, you know, what happened to Tone Loke? What happened? I'm you very You know what? If I had more talents in Photoshop and a lot more time, I might try to make a, an alternate version with face replacement over Hannah uh, with Tone Loke. <laughs> I'm sad that we'll never exist now. But we can dream. We, we can, can dream. dream. <laughs> if anybody's listening to this with a lot of insane uh, CGI te- skills, I will pay cash money to see this version of Eats. <laughs> this heat. is a
1: thing that must happen. I'm
2: putting this out there right now.
1: You know you know what's funny? In, in all seriousness, this is the... the I, I said how impactful this was, seeing De Niro and Pacino on screen together. This was a thing that for me in my age when this movie came out, this is a thing I really wanted to have happen. And it, it, it satisfied me. It had the weight on screen, that the now absolutely abused pairing of Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman just never quite accomplished. <laughs> uh, I've
2: watched the movie countless times. I've actually watched that specific scene over and over again a few times because the way it was shot has always been really interesting to me as well. Because the whole idea of yeah, it was it's kind of famous now. They didn't rehearse anything, so they kind of kept the spontaneity of things, um, and they shot it with uh, I think five cameras rolling all at once they shot basically every single angle all at the same time when they had it. So the actors could, could really play off performance and they didn't have to go, Oh great. We loved, you know, take six of your performance. So we're going to match to that. But what's so great about it is there's, you know, the movie was marketed as a buildup of, you know, this is, you're going to finally see Pacino and De Niro and they're going to, you know, they're going to face off. And when you finally have the big confrontation, it's a very small scene on the side of the highway of, hey, do you want to go get a cup of coffee with me? So really, everybody talks about the diner scene, but really the first time they actually meet is De Niro sitting in a car and Pacino standing on the side of the freeway being like, hey, come have a cup of coffee with me. And then the following scene, I think the brilliance of it is that it's such a small, quiet scene. It's two guys sitting at a really nondescript, kind of shitty-looking diner having a cup of coffee, like it's so anticlimactic to what the, the buildup is. And I think that's actually what makes it great. And that most of the scene really lives in, in two close ups of these two guys just kind of bantering back and forth in its presentation. And I mean this in the best way possible in its presentation, it's almost pedestrian. Um, but because of that, because it's not dressed up as an audience, you really get to just sit there and kind of soak it all in and see all the nuance of, performance and the looks and all the subtleties um because it's not dressed up because it's not a big thing.
1: Well, it's interesting and I'm I'm curious your opinion on this because I you know a, as you mentioned there there is the re-release coming out this, this new 4K remaster. They just it's timely that we're talking about this movie because just last week they did the uh, they had a, a big premiere of this new remastered version uh in LA and the whole cast showed up. Yeah, I know. A, I
2: was I was heartbroken I couldn't be in LA. Oh, it's
1: fantastic. <laughs> and and uh, Oscar's uh, on their Oscars YouTube pages just posted a channel or a, a playlist of of a bunch of videos from these and in these they they talk specifically about the diner scene so michael mann says that uh he says they were shooting primarily with three cameras one over each shoulder for close-ups and one two shot in the final film, obviously, we get no two-shot, and that, of course, has fueled conspiracy theorists saying that, in fact, they were never actually in the diner together, um, you know, were it not for behind-the-scenes photos actually showing them together. We do have that, but in any case, they made a, an interesting strategic decision, a visual decision, not to include the two-shot in this conversation between the t- these two guys. Why do you think that is? And do you think that, uh, you know, do you think it would have been uh, stronger or or how would it have been different had they they gone with a two shot?
2: It's interesting. You know, I haven't actually thought about it now that, now that you mention it. As much as the two of them are connecting, the, the two of them really are. I, I feel like they're still miles apart from each other. And it's the idea of like, great, we're sitting down, we're having a conversation, we're having a cup of coffee. We're getting to know each other, but not really like we're not really, you know, the information, uh, the information being given is, is uh, from Hannah is oddly personal and intimate, but nothing that could hurt him. Whereas Macaulay is giving really generic information. You know, I have a woman, I tell her I'm in sales, like nothing that, that Hannah could use later on and get, you know, to, to use against him. So it's interesting that it's, it's the scene very much is still, as much as they're sitting across from each other having a cup of coffee and connecting, they couldn't possibly be further away because at the end of the day, it's you're trying to capture me and I'm trying to get away from you. Uh, you could make the argument that, that showing a two-shot puts them both together in the same space together and it makes it a, a moment about the two of them together when in reality it's, it's the two of them are there, Hannah's trying to get information to size them up, Macaulay, you know, if you watch his performance, Macaulay spends the first half of that scene kind of looking around left to right, trying to figure out like where are the exits, and are we the only people here, and what's the angle? Is this some kind of a setup? Like, you know, am I going to have to bolt and run? Um, so it's interesting, you know. Again, never not knowing, not knowing the shots that aren't used in the edit. Uh, I think you could make the argument that 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 two shot creates the illusion of a relationship between the two of them that doesn't actually exist. And if you go one step further, now that I'm thinking about it, I wonder if the only actual two shot of them together is the very last shot where they're uh where they're next to each other, you know, holding hands. I wonder if that's the only shot where you see the two of them in some kind of a wider shot together that
0: way. That's what I was thinking and that's why I really I mean that's kind of been my interpretation of of this, And I, I wasn't watching the film with that in mind, but I had the impression that man didn't want to give us that pairing of these two guys, like really connecting on screen together until that last moment.
1: Because as you say, like, we don't want to imply a relationship that does not exist when in fact, at the end of the film, it's, it's in his death scene that that relationship does exist, maybe for the first time. Yeah. As authentically.
2: Yeah, I never thought about that. Wow, that is great. I never thought about it until right now.
0: I need to go watch it again and see if they ever are really in a two shot together. Yeah, now,
2: I'm now genuinely curious. Like now I'm going to go back and like turn the sound <laughs> off and study the movie more and go, Holy shit. Look at that.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: I,
2: I again, think there's I, a, I, I, that, that goes back to like what we were talking about earlier is that like the, the meticulous attention to detail of, you know, for, of Michael Mann and that's in all of his movies, that idea of, you know, nothing, nothing is, is ever uh passive. Like there's never a passive decision of, oh, we're going to shoot a close-up. Like that close-up has real intention, real meaning that maybe you don't realize until later in the movie or as we're discussing right now, maybe it's a, a, a subconscious thing you don't, you don't ever realize consciously but you feel as the movie goes along.
1: Let's uh, let's do some rapid fire through some uh, other cast members we have not yet talked about. Val Kilmer, Chris Scheherlis.
2: Val Kilmer when he was like still being
0: awesome.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Although this was the same year that, uh, that Batman, he, Batman and Robin came out. Yeah, that's what he said this week. Or was week, it Batman Forever? It was
1: Batman Forever and it was this week at the, at the event. He said the most fun I ever had doing Batman was in prepping for heat. Was prepping for heat, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was
2: funny. I was talking to someone last night about this. Uh, years ago, I had a chance to shoot uh, Val Kilmer for, was doing this one man show as Mark Twain. And it, it sounds kind of funny. Like, wait, Val Kilmer as Mark Twain doing like a one man, like 45 minute stage show. And it was fucking brilliant. He was so good in it. And I remember watching it cause I was, he was doing a, again, oddly, I think he was like, uh, at the Disney concert hall is like the surprise opening act for, uh, I think Ryan Adams was doing a a musical concert there. It was like a very bizarre evening because the audience also were like, they had no idea what, why they're watching Mark Twain for 45 minutes. And nobody (laughs) told them it was Val Kilmer. And I was there shooting it for him. Nobody told them it
1: was Val Kilmer. It was so
2: bizarre, but the the brilliance of it. So I'm like, I'm up in the balcony shooting this thing for Val Kilmer of him doing this show. And he comes out afterwards, he takes the makeup off and everybody in the audience is kind of dumbfounded. There's like this odd silence because nobody can believe what they're looking at. But he was so fucking good in it. And I just remember watching that performance and being like, shit, that's right. Val Kilmer is an amazingly talented actor. But I feel like after The Island of Dr. Moreau, it was like there was this like long stretch of just not great movies.
0: Yeah, he kind of fell off the fell off the uh, the wagon of making great stuff. I mean, other than Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I can't think of anything else that he's done you know, recently that's great. Heat. Yeah, one of my
2: favorite scenes in the entire movie is between uh, him and Charlene, like at the very end when he you know oh. he shows up to pick her up, you know, and it's just like his close up at the car, her close up at the balcony, she waves his hand away. And it's all told in in basically what three sh his close her close-up, the hand wave. And it's so heartbreaking and it's so good.
1: Well, and and so much of it is is on the backs of both his performance and hers. They are just terrific together. By
2: the way, can we also talk about how badass Val Kilmer is, like in the whole shootout scene? Um, oh, and the he's fact great. that, you know, the it's become famous now. Uh, you know, he's shooting out that shootout, you know, his. His rifle goes empty, you know, pops the clip, slaps another one in. And they've used that, you know, training facilities for like the Marines and police and special forces have used that clip as a reference of if you can do, if you can reload in even half that time, you're, you're good. Like, can we just talk about the fact that Val Kilmer (laughs) trained so hard that he's making like professionals Watch his footage and go, goddamn! That guy's good. Yeah, total <laughs> badass. Right.
0: He's great, and he's uh, he's just as uh, as much a sociopath as uh, as uh, Neil is. <laughs> yeah,
2: and what's interesting though is when they come out of the bank. The whole idea of thirty seconds, like when they come out of the bank, what makes I think that shootout seems so shocking is how quickly he goes from zero to sixty. Like he's walking across the street, sees the cops and there's not even a reaction like he just like he just goes you're like oh that's what there's that discipline there that we've been talking about for you know, for an hour and 45 minutes, there it is in, in, in motion there.
1: Well, and that's it, because that's what you get with, I think, both De Niro and Kilmer. You get these characters who are there. The reason they're able to to move so quickly is because they were already there. I think that's in contrast to Tom Sizemore's Michael Chirito, who uh, he's the guy who's getting sort of the joy out of it. Like, you see, he's already in the car yeah. at that point, kind of slapping the, you know, and he's like, ah, we did it, you know, hitting Dennis Haysbert on the back. And, and, and so you feel like he's the guy who's gonna have to ramp up. He wasn't quite as serious. But in Val Kilmer, you have a stone-sober guy.
2: Yeah, it's the, it's the I'm not in the car, we're not driving away, we're, yeah. we haven't gotten away with it, we're still in motion. Yeah. Are, whereas Trita, yeah, Trito's in there laughing like, you know, hey, the hard part's done. It's like, no, you asshole. Yeah. You're sitting in the car with a machine gun and $12 million, you still have to get away. But actually, it means it's, it's going through the cast, like also like uh, uh, John Voight is again, like just so... So good in the movie. John Voight watched the movie. I'm like, I, you know, like, I love my friends. I have great friends. I'm like, I wish I had John Voight's Nate as a friend. Like, that's the guy I want to know.
0: He's such an interesting character. And I, I didn't realize this, but he's he's kind of uh, based on Edward Bunker, who was a real life former career criminal and and fence-turned-writer who actually, I mean, he's written a bunch of books about crime. Uh, he was a consultant on the film. He's acted in films. He was Mr. Blue in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. He's great. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so interesting. And you look at John Voight as Nate and you go, oh, okay, yes, I can totally see it now. You know, like that connection is right there. Within
2: that framework, you're like, oh yeah, totally. Okay, next one. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he's great. I love I love seeing Tom Noonan. You brought him up. I mean, he's great. I, I love that just the the little thing that, you know, he's in a wheelchair. and But he's this guy who's like, he lives under these, uh, under the, the radar towers and the satellite dishes and everything. And he's just, you know, collecting information, putting these plans together. It's and really his, interesting. And
2: his amazing beard in the movie. Like it's a pretty, <laughs> uh, but again, also like Natalie Portman, because I think, this was like her sec- this was only her second movie after The Professional, right?
0: It may have been. I mean, she obviously was was just so young at the time. I mean, she was just doing such things, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think she did The Professional and this was like only her second movie and same thing like she's just so damn good.
0: Yeah, right away you can tell that she's uh, she's just a, a child actor who already had a, an old soul in her. I mean, she carries a lot of heft in both of those films. And we've talked about um, Leon, the professional, on this show before. And here you see that same depth to the character and just the, the darkness she has and, and just the struggle she has with this absent father and I really love the moment where where uh, i mean it's it's a terrifying terrible moment, but you know when she's tried to uh, kill herself in Hannah's bathtub at his hotel you've got that conversation afterward with uh, with her mom uh, Diane Venora and Al Pacino where she's like she chose you she she you know she you're the one that she connected to you're the one that she was crying out to. I found that so interesting that that you know. For Hannah, particularly this guy who's who's you know walled himself off so much to having these kind of personal relationships, that connection, that that kind of defense, he's always looking out for the daughter, and he's always kind of frustrated with the father. And here he is with the, with Natalie Portman's character having that connection with him. I just found that just so incredibly touching.
2: Oh, by the way, uh, let's not forget uh, Jeremy Piven's one scene role in the movie as well.
0: Yeah right. Yes,
2: pivotal. It to- totally random. Like that's what I mean. Like this whole movie's like, you're like holy shit, that
0: guy's in this movie too. Well, even Bud Cort from uh, from Harold and Maude, he pops up as the restaurant owner. I mean, it's like everybody is oh, it. You're right. Oh, I forgot yeah. about that. I totally didn't realize that.
1: I I can't believe I'm the first one to mention Danny Trejo. I mean, come on, Machete, <laughs> right?
0: <laughs>
2: Which, by the way, I love. What the, one of the few complaints I have about the movie is. When they're having their little powwow about, you know, do we walk away or do we stay? And everyone is talking about, you know, what do you think? What do you think? And everybody gets like this moment of, of, of you know, they all get their little moments of we're going to talk about it and really side. And then they cut to a wide shot and they turn to Danny Trejo and he's like, yeah, fuck it, whatever. And they're all, like, they all laugh about it. Like, okay, cool. And I'm like, well, wait a second. These three guys get to have a say and Danny Trejo's like, yeah oh, whatever, fuck it. Let's go shoot people. I'm like, wait! I, he gets no more character development than that. What the shit? No wonder he, no wonder he turned on you guys at the end. You know,
1: I'm I'm gonna do pretty much what the film does with the next three characters, and uh, because this is a, uh, we'll call it a man story, Diane Venora, Ashley Judd, and Amy Brenneman as the representative women.
2: Justine is such an interesting character to me because I'm watching her going like from the very opening scene, you're like, yeah, this marriage is not going to last. Like as an audience, you're like, this isn't going to last. Like, yeah, they wake up in the morning after having sex and she's already, she's already popping pills. Like, it's like, all right, this is, this is how she's, this is how she's coping, getting through her day. Their relationship to me gets really interesting late in the movie when she sleeps with Ralph and then they come back together in the hospital to kind of, over, uh, over her daughter's, you know, attempted the suicide attempt and watching of, you know, her talking about the only way for me to get a closer with you is I have to debase myself with Ralph. And the idea of I'm angry that it can't work, but I still love you is really fascinating. Uh, Charlene with Ashley Judge, she's great. I mean, again, she's just, she loves her husband. She loves Chris so much that, uh, when which is really, if you think about this is actually pretty screwed up. She loves him so much that when she has the opportunity basically comes down to like, Hey, it's either Chris or your kid. And when push comes to shove, you know, cause if she waves him away and they pull him over and go, Oh yeah, this is Chris. And they arrest him then she loses the kid anyways. So if you think about it, she actually, when pushed to come to shove between choosing the man she loves and her child, she still sort of leans towards the man she loves at the risk of her child which I always found really interesting, like, wow, as much as you loved your kid, like when push came to shove, you still rolled the dice on Chris. Amy Brenneman as, as Edie, it's always funky to me because that's, as a, she's great. I mean, she's great in the movie, but her character always threw me a little bit because I always felt like, Macaulay says, hey, run away with me. Where she's like, oh, sure, New Zealand? Yeah, sure, okay, fuck it. Let's go to New Zealand. I just met you. I don't know anything about you. Sure, fuck it, let's go. And it always is interesting, like, well, that, that was really sudden to be like, hey, we just met. Uh, hey, I don't know anything about you. But sure, I'll pack up my whole life and move to New Zealand with you. Why not?
0: Especially because she's such a May to uh, Robert De Niro's December. Yeah which, you know, that always strikes me, too. I'm like, she's, you know, there's so much life for her to still be, you know, seeking out, you know, the graphic design, whatever it is that she's trying to do. And, and here she is just like, yeah, I'll, I'll go. Uh, it, it, that always, that's one, uh, I mean, I love Amy Brenneman. I think she is great in the film, too. But um, I, I always wonder if I would have liked it more if it was somebody that I would have bought in the relationship a little more.
1: You know what's interesting about it? All three of these women sort of play the same character on a continuum, right? With Diane Venora, we get, she's, she they're all broken in sort of the same way. Diane Venora is broken uh, that that she's in a relationship that is already broken. And everybody has come to terms with the fact that it's over. Uh, Ashley Judd, as Charlene, is playing this character who's in the middle of breaking, right? Their relationship is, is breaking as we watch. And uh, Amy Brenneman is playing this character that is, we know, because we've seen where this goes with these other two ladies, that her relationship will start and then will ultimately break. They are they're all demonstrating like the same sort of of archetype of um, sort of negative relationships and negative stereotype uh, of of this sort of needy character. One of the criticisms that I read repeatedly in researching the film is that the film does not handle female characters well, and and in some respects that's because that's the story Michael Mann wanted to tell. And because it's Michael Mann in general with his
0: films. That's yeah. number two. He makes man films. <laughs> right.
1: And number three is we have to acknowledge the fact that no one in this film is really treated all that well. Everybody is broken. And so you know, why should be it be any any different based on gender here? So
2: Yeah, but it's interesting the idea too of, of maybe as an audience, what we find interesting about Edie's character is of the three Uh, Women that are predominantly featured in the movie, you can look at Edie and go, these other two are on the on the downside of what these types of relationships play out to be. You're just getting into it. So maybe as an audience, we're looking going like, oh, we know this can't lead anywhere good. You know, we know that you should really should not be with Macaulay. You really should say no to New Zealand, you really should be more cautious
1: well, and interesting too i i I unintentionally left out Natalie Portman, but really isn't she also a part of this uh sort of well, uh, this sort of archetype of broken women as a young woman she's uh incapable of of you know kind of moving forward without attempting suicide
2: although that's an interesting one because that's I always felt like that that story was very similar to that you know that Pacino, you know, revealing like, oh, you know, the uh, a backstory that was never addressed in the movie was the fact that Hannah was a coke addict. And you're like, oh, well, you know, the movie framed against that, there's a lot of things that make a bit more sense. With Natalie Portman's character, there's always that question of like, all right, there's there's an implication of some kind of a mental illness there, um, you know, some kind of depression, but it's never really specifically addressed. So it's it becomes a matter of like, is it like, is that issue stemming from an issue with her father? Is that stemming from abandonment issues in general? In which case, Hannah is kind of contributing to that of, you know, hey, my dad abandoned me. Hannah is also abandoning me, abandoning me. Basically, everybody in the movie is broken, whether it's man, you know, men or women, like everybody in the movie is, is pretty broken at the end, at the end of the day.
0: No matter what, you're not going to get out of a Michael Mann film uh, in a healthy relationship. Yeah, nobody's
2: nobody's happy in a Michael like nobody in a Michael Mann film is happy. Everybody is miserable. Everybody's kind of unhappy. Um, I'm saying maybe, my, maybe, maybe instead of starting a petition about uh, instead of starting a petition uh, about tone lock, maybe start a petition about uh, people giving Michael Mann a hug. That be, <laughs> just,
0: if you see him on the streets of L.A., give this <laughs> man a hug. Hugmichaelmann.net.
2: Hug I'm going to go buy that right now. <laughs>
0: Well, I think that, you know, I think it'd be important um, as a part of our conversation with you to talk about the cinematography here. I mean, oh, Dante yes. Spinotti uh, is the cinematographer here, creating just a beautiful, a beautiful look. And uh, obviously there's a lot of wonderful colors and uh, just, I mean, just a great, uh, very well shot film. Uh, as a cinematographer, I mean, what, what's your sense of the movie and, and how, how they put this together?
2: I mean, I think Dante Spinotti does beautiful, period. But I think heat is I think definitely stands out because so much of the movie is so subtle, um, like so much of the movie l- doesn't look lit at all, um, and it's it's making something look unlit takes so much work. You know, nowadays with digital cameras, it's very easy to walk into places. You know, it's night exteriors are very easy to turn on the camera and go. Well, digital cameras have gotten so sensitive now that. You can do so much with so little. You can go out at night and shoot at night, you know, with without any light if you really wanted to. You can walk into a room and turn on a lamp in the corner, and sometimes that's sufficient light to shoot. You know, this was back in nineteen eighty-five, before digital, still film. Not at all the case. So everything is very much lit, but none of it feels lit. And I think that's, like watching Heat again earlier this week, I was just kind of reminded. I was like, wow, so much of this movie is so so subtle um, and so understated visually that that, I think that's kind of where the beauty comes from is that it often feels like cameras just rolled up someplace and started rolling. Um, in reality watching, it was like, there's so much work happening here to make this look uh, unobtrusive. And there's something also great, especially the night work in LA. Uh, all that night work in, in Los Angeles. Everybody kind of points at, at Collateral as the kind of one of the first movies to show LA at night. You know the way it really is, with you know light bouncing off the sky and the the sky pollution you get. But watch, and which is true. But watching Heat, um, that kind of that that ugly blue sodium vapor, orange, like all those kind of heinous ugly colors that you get in downtown LA at night or industrial areas um, that normally to the eye are so kind of garish and ugly come across so beautifully. Like watching that movie, I was like, yeah, that's what LA at night feels like, like driving through LA at night, you know, turning the corner, going down the wrong street and going, Oh, I don't want to be this part of town. Like all the places that the movie inhabits, that's what LA feels like. Maybe it's not necessarily what it looks like. And I think that's maybe what the better part of it, the big accomplishment of his work is. In addition to just being so subtle and so, so nuanced that it's very hard to, to point out, you know, it's very hard to point and say, oh, this is a beautiful shot because everything's kind of beautiful in, in a very simplistic way. Maybe the better new, better compliment is, uh, the movie feels like LA, like it may not necessarily look like it literally, but watching it you're like, yeah, that's what LA feels like at night. Like that's what, you know, four o'clock in the morning feels like in Los Angeles. There's so little handheld work in the movie, really. There's a lot of there's a lot of Steadicam, but there's not a lot of handheld except for uh, I think the shootout in downtown. That's the kind of the first time you see a lot of, not, and even then, it's not a lot of it.
0: It's interesting that you that you mentioned that. I wasn't even thinking about that, but it's certainly something that caught my eye when I was watching um, the very first. Heist uh when they break into the armored car, the armored truck to get all the Oh the bonds. Yeah, yeah the, the bonds. bonds from Van zandt You've got this this intense buildup to kinda of, you know, as we're seeing what's going on here and we see kind of the the pieces coming into place, and then when they knock the the vehicle over uh, with the rig, and it crashes into a whole bunch of other cars, you get this this very still shot. It's like it's it's amazing that they kind of cut this in there, but it's just a very still shot. As as a pole kind of tips over and yeah, a streamer yeah. that was yeah. on it just yeah, very yeah. slowly drifts down. I'm like, this is in the middle of like a big
1: action scene, and they took the time for that. It just, it was amazing. Oh God, Andy, you know what's so great about that is that I'm sitting there as a audience member and I am literally holding my breath. That's what that does to me in terms of the pacing of that sequence. It makes me stop and hold my breath.
2: It's it's the calm before the storm because it's the. It's the shock factor of holy shit, and then because as an audience again, it's it's that I think it's that that build up letdown. It's that idea of like the build up of you know boom cars. This is you know all this this sudden violence. So as an audience, you know the adrenaline kicks in. You're like, okay, that's now the movies. This is the mode the movies in now. And then you put that moment in there of stillness. So as an audience, you're like, well, wait a second. I'm all pre- I'm prepared for this what the shit is happening and then they're right back into it that kind of violence it's the same thing the bank robbery at the end in the streets of you know we're walking out we're walking out everything's fine and then val kimmer goes from zero to 60 it's the same kind of shock factor but i think the reverse of oh we're gonna take this moment of stillness Um, and something that's almost comical that streamer kind of floating down in slow motion yeah. Before right back into, you know, guns and masks and explosions, et cetera, et cetera.
1: The, the other thing it is visually is it's an exercise in contrast for us because so much of this film is uh, plays out in very long lenses. Right. Where, mm-hmm. you, you know, it and and then the contrast is we're going to stop and we're going to show you escape with a very wide lens, and we're going to show you the whole street, and you're going to get to take it all in before we jump right back in to look at the close-ups, uh, you know, close-up of, of mass gunmen, close-up of ponytailed masked gunmen, close-up of scared police officer. Um, everything else plays in such tight quarters that, that those breaks where we get to see escape in the sequence uh, is a pause.
2: You know, one other thing. Watch the movie that I was reminded of, uh, piggybacking that idea is, uh, I think, a bit of, of Dante and Michael at the same time. How beautifully executed and staged all of the action sequences are. Because I mean, now there, there's such a, a prevalence to you know long lenses and handheld, and this kind of you know keeping a, a certain kind of erratic energy on screen. When you get into actions, you know, big action scenes. And especially if the action's really big and there's a lot of ground to cover, it feels like more chaotic things get. And watching the movie again, all of the robberies, you know, the opening with the armored truck, you know, the shootout in downtown. What I think makes it work so great is you don't have that kind you don't have that kind of shaky, erratic, handheld look that's that you find in a lot of other in a lot of modern action stuff. It's all fairly controlled, but more than that, is an audience you're never lost on the geography. Like you always know where you are within the sequence. You always know the relationship of where people are. You know, you always know this person is here in relation to this person. I know where everybody's at. I know where all the action's happening. As an audience, you never lose a sense of geography and that energy and the adrenaline and the excitement is still all there without resorting to, you know, shaky snap zooms, to kind of create false energy, and I think watching it, I was like, "That's that's what's great to me is that you know, this camera's you know flying around in a steadicam. There's a lot of cuts, there's a lot of close-ups. I feel the 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 chaos of what's happening, but as an audience, I'm never confused as to where I'm at or what's happening. It's all very, it's very precise." in a lot of ways.
1: And isn't that a case example in the closing sequence where we have this sort of chess scene, right? This this chess game played out with the lights flying over and the you know these two guys dancing in the shadows at the end of this runway and I you know what what really stuck out to me is the the shot length of this sequence as we start with slightly longer shots uh, you know of these guys as they're uh, moving throughout these these small buildings at the end of the runway and the lights are flying overhead and the shots get faster and faster and faster. And I think to your point of false energy, nowhere in here did I need the camera to start shaking around in order to give me that sense of energy. That energy was built with these two guys creeping around through cuts and shot length, you know, in, increasing the frequency of shots uh, over time uh, alone. Good
2: cinematography is, is so reliant, I think, also on, strong editing choices but it's not and when i say that i don't mean it's it's not just what choices are the editor going to make it's the choices that a, a director and a cinematographer are going to make in terms of we're going to do this shot that's then going to we're going to juxtapose this shot with this shot like so much of cinematography is when you're shooting going how are how are these two shots how are these three shots how are these 500 shots going to go together and obviously an editor comes in comes in and and Puts, has their own case and their own ideas but the initial idea becomes so important that idea of like going back to the armored truck of you know after the truck hits we're going to have this big wide shot and we're going to let it play out for a moment um, and maybe that streamer falling in was a happy accident maybe that was planned but that shot and that kind of stillness of, wit, of, of showing the full scope of what just happened before we're back into all those close-ups is such a great decision the same thing at the end of you know, we're moving around, but there's not there's not a radic camera movement. we're not spitting around the characters. We're not doing a lot of like crazy overhead shots. It does become a game of, of cat and mouse of all these boxes look the same. So to a certain extent, as an audience, you do kind of get lost of, I, I don't know which box he's behind. I don't know, you know, is he going to hop out and there he's going to be. And then when you finally do get your bearings, you're like, oh wait, now I'm not confused. Okay, now I know where they are. So now at the very end, that's where the tension comes out from. I think of, I was confused first about where people were intentionally. Now I know the geography. So now I know that he's at that corner and he's approaching that corner. And at any moment, one of them is going to pop out and only one person can make it out alive here.
1: You know, that's an interesting thing. It's really the the fact that they do intersperse the the longer, wider shots that give us the overall sense of geography that builds intensity for us. It's it's only once we know as an audience, uh, we know where these guys are relation, in relation to one another that we're actually able to feel nervous for them both.
2: Yeah. You know, and I'm going to jump back, kind of going back to something else with Spinati that I thought about. One of the things that I think is is really stunning about his work in the movie, too, just lighting-wise, in addition to just kind of how subtle and, and nuanced things are and how naturalistic, and again, I mean this in the best way, how like kind of, I shouldn't say always, but often uh, almost flat and almost borderline ugly the lighting is. Um, and it's very interesting because it's in a lot of ways it's similar to The Insider, uh, which again, Michael Mann and, and Dante Spinati, like uh, the idea of... In that movie, like, there's, they do the opposite. There's a lot of like, really harsh lighting and a lot of really hard light and a lot of very vibrant and colorful. Um, whereas here, everything's a little muted. Everything's a very soft. But there are things you're watching going like, I mean, towards the end of the movie, uh, Macaulay you know, walking through the hotel, watching it going like, all right, that, that on its surface is, is, is pretty flat. It's a bunch of wall sconce lights. Um, in a hallway like the lighting is fairly flat fairly even but again watching it is is you're like but there's an uh, there's a certain kind of beauty that comes out of that and I think that's kind of the brilliance of Dante Spinati is is being able to find things that under normal circumstance you'd look and go is, are either unremarkable or unattractive um, and he finds kind of a brilliant way to, to to frame those in a way that you look and go oh that's actually beautiful I've never seen it that way before.
1: We
0: talked a little bit about that um, in our last speakeasy about Fat City, um, which takes place in, in Stockton, California. And mm-hmm. uh, boy, they, they do an amazing job of of uh, making you kind of, well, at least making me kind of fall in love with a lot of the ugliness going on. <laughs> yeah, and that's that
2: that's so, I mean, again, Conrad Hall, like that's, it's always interesting to me it, how, how much work it takes to make something look like you didn't do any work. Um, and how much talent it takes to make something that uh, in anybody else's hands would be ugly and unattractive actually take on a, a, its, own, its own kind of beauty. My wife says a lot because um, uh, you know, she, she loves to sing and she, she'll screw around with people uh, and sing terribly. And she's actually got a beautiful voice. And it's that idea of, of you know, to sing terribly, you actually have to be able to sing really well. Uh, so it's that kind of inverse thing. If somebody can watch and go, you know, Oh, that movie looks completely unlit and natural, like they didn't do anything, I'm like, that take that's probably the biggest compliment you can give to a cinematographer that takes right. <laughs> so much work and talent to do that.
0: The cinematography, I mean, obviously, this is a long movie. They shot a lot of film. And like you said, this was film back back in 95. They had to have a team of four uh, main editors working on this to cut this thing together. What I find interesting, there's this website that we uh, we haven't looked at in a long time, Pete, yeah, but Cinemetrics. Yeah, um, they actually have people who go through a movie and, and average out the shots. So you can wow. get a sense of how many or how long is the average shot length in a movie. Just as a comparison, I thought it'd be interesting to look at. In this movie, the average shot length is 4.4 seconds, which seems pretty short um, when you hear it that way. But then when you compare it to The Rock, which came out the following year, directed by Michael Bay, that's at 2.5 seconds. And then uh, we've talked about the Bourne series on this show, The uh, born
1: identity is at (laughs) 3.6 seconds which is a leisurely 3.6 i'm
2: like i I really would have thought like you know like Oh, well, you're talking about the born identity. You're talking about the first one, right? Right. I was going to say, like, born supremacy, what, are we, like, into fractions of seconds? Yeah, born
0: <laughs> word supremacy drops down to 1.1 second is the average shot That sounds
2: about, that I, I actually thought it would have it'd been shorter. I thought they would have been, like, decimal points at that point. I
0: know. Ultimatum, they're at 2.1. They came up a little oh, bit. Oh, they and doubled then,
2: it. Oh, impressive. Yeah.
0: And legacy, <laughs> I, you know, it wasn't uh, Greengrass in that one, but it was back down to 1.3. So they went uh, pretty short for legacy. <laughs>
2: I feel like you're making you're making commercials at that point
0: right exactly so this 4.4 4 seconds an average shot like feels awfully uh, snail paced <laughs> well and leisurely. It, it
1: doesn't it doesn't it really fit into one of the things that man has said over and over this is not a genre film it's a drama right yeah. and 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 it at 4.4 4 seconds feels dramatic right but
2: it, it's in, it's interesting cuz yeah it's it's it is it's just, you know we've talked about it, it's it's this kind of sprawling epic crime thriller drama thing If you take all the giant action set pieces away from it, to a certain extent, it's, I don't know, this, again, in the alternate universe uh, where so many other beautiful things exist, uh, such as Tone Lock playing Hannah, uh, in that same alternate universe, it'd be interesting to see this movie with Pacino and De Niro not playing a cop and robber, but playing some other parts that are also direct opposition to each other. Like, to a certain extent, the movie really is, it is, it's a drama that happens to have some action pieces in it. But right. you could take those action pieces out and I would still argue that uh, the movie dramatically and story-wise, performance-wise, would still be just as strong.
1: This movie is practically Dead Poets Society. <laughs> <laughs>
2: alternate universe movies here
1: i'm telling you this this show is <laughs> a an incredible resource for aspiring youtubers
2: <laughs> it's a brainchild for alternate universe <laughs> movies that have to be made i demand it
0: right here let's, yes indeed let's talk about the music a little bit elliot goldenthal does the score and uh, i mean he comes into this with a kind of an avant-garde especially for the time score that it, it doesn't really have themes it's just it's just vibes it just gives you a sense of what's going on Um same thing with the music, and, and Michael Mann is really a uh, a filmmaker who likes just uh, a lot of really interesting tracks in his in his films. Uh, the music in this film works so well, both the the songs that he picks and the score. I just find it such uh, such energetic pieces that that give such life to it.
2: It's also like I, such iconic music, like some of that, you know, like the uh, the the bank robbery. You know, in that first shot of Macaulay walking into the door. You know, and that kind of industrial and the drum beats hitting over and over again. Like right. you hear the first, you hear like the first two seconds of that music and immediately you're like, Oh, that's from heat. Wow. I really want to go rob a bank right now. Um, <laughs> like that music is just so, yeah, it's, it's very iconic, but it's, you're right. It's what I love about it too, is it's kind of going back to that idea we were talking about earlier of, of, architecture and industry play such a big part visually, like all of the music, almost all of the music and the soundtrack feels very industrial. Um, it feels yes. very kind of metallic and artificial. And it just, it feels like the locations in the
0: movie. That That's really interesting. It really does tie into everything Michael Mann is doing, creating this world.
2: Yeah. And, I, and the song at the end uh, that plays over the, uh, the end scene of them, you know, the two men holding hands out in that field, that scene plays well by itself. But with that music, I think that music really, really ties together and makes that scene really sing. Like without the music, the scene is strong with the music that scene wraps up the whole movie and you go, okay, that's the ending. That's the ending that I wanted and I, the movie deserved and I'm satisfied with it.
0: Yeah. That track, that's uh, God moving over the face of the waters by Moby. Yeah. yeah
2: it's, it's a beautiful song and it's, and but more than that, it's like you said, Michael Mann does uh, in all of his movies, there's a heavy reliance in a good way on music. Um, but I think it's done, especially he just so well. Of, of the music is really matching the visuals, which is really matching the the themes and the tone of the whole movie.
1: I I have to say, you know, just a, a little bit of a heartbreaking bit of awareness that the that the other Moby track on here, New Dawn Fades, which was originally uh, Joy Division, I like Moby's version better, and it's probably because <laughs> of this film. So, well, very, with apologies to Joy Division.
2: I, I mean, here, I, this, if I recall, I mean, this is, you know, this is now a while ago, but I think this may have been oddly, and this may have been the first time I heard uh, Moby at all was in this movie.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, my, yeah, it might have been for me, too. I'm not sure when he really kind of, when did he really kick off his career? I don't even know.
1: Uh, Moby's special event, uh, next real special event show. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah, that'll go be coming Moby. soon. Yeah, coming soon.
0: This film, weirdly, Did not get any Oscar nominations. And I don't know if I'm saying that um, with surprise or not. Because I mean, it's a genre film, I guess. It's not the sort of thing, especially in 95, that you would have seen getting any Oscar nominations. But even, I mean, I, I kind of came back to this going, oh, well, I'm sure it got a nomination for like Best Sound Mixing. Um, you know best editing something like that nothing not a single uh, award nomination for this film other i mean it got some you know minor sorts of nominations in in other uh, other you know film critics things i don't know it it surprised me did it surprise either of you you know
2: it's inter- it's funny it's it's surprising like you hear that now you go like what the shit how did that happen and it's shocking and it's you know it's a crime and you get outraged and you go yeah but there's a there's such a long history of some brilliant things being totally overlooked. I mean, you know, it's the, you know, Gordon Willis never being nominated for an Oscar. You know, it's the, you know, Blade Runner didn't get nominated for an Oscar for its cinematography. Like, right. yeah, you know, so just, you know, you look, there's a track record of of movies that I think we look at nowadays, decades after the release, when you go, this is kind of a, a miniature masterpiece that holds up today better than ever. Um, and is still uh, such a big influence for people. But when it got released, got it didn't get any love. Um, I mean, you know, there's, I mean, there's a reason the last week, you know, everybody from the movie got together, you know, for a what, you know, a 25 year anniversary, and now, you know, 2017 was it 27 years later? Um, you know, they're re-releasing the movie yet again in 4K. You know, it's like they don't they don't do that without unless it's a movie that that has such relevance. Um, and and it's such a good, powerful movie. Yeah, it has the staying power. Yeah, like one hand, I'm am out. right hear that and I'm outraged. I'm like, that's bullshit, and what the hell? And how's it happen? And we start a letter writing campaign to have this retroactively fixed. <laughs> um, but I'm like, yeah, but no, because I'm going to go spend my time for the uh, you know the tone lock version of Heat, and instead, you know, I'm also looking going like, there's such a long history of that kind of thing happening that I'm actually I'm actually not surprised.
0: Well, I think the important thing is that, you know, even if it didn't get nominated, it is a film that is going to linger. This is a film that will stick in people's minds long after the fact. And, uh, I mean, geez, even Michael Mann, you know, he's recently uh, started a book company, Michael Mann Books. And one of the first three books, uh, which I believe they're actually working on right now, is a prequel to Heat. And it's going to be kind of the formative years of of all of these characters, which... uh, it's it's a story that people uh, latch onto and love and want to keep being uh, drawn back into.
1: How badly do you want that to be a Netflix original?
0: I oh
2: my god! I was just <laughs> thinking so I was like, holy shit! Please tell me that Netflix just heard that and bought that up. <laughs> <clears throat> I would be I would be sitting there with like a pizza and a ten pound bag of popcorn and just binge watch it all damn night. That'd yep. be amazing.
0: Andy, uh, how did it do? Uh, this film did well for itself. Uh, this film was released December fifteenth, nineteen ninety-five. Um, it cost sixty million to make this movie, uh, which, in I don't know, in retrospect, seems kind of small for what they accomplished. But when you say you know it's largely a drama, I guess I can kind of buy into that. I couldn't find anything as far as its prints and advertising budget. So, um, but domestically, it ended up making about sixty-seven point four million, and internationally about hundred twenty million. So all told, it uh, definitely made its money back and ended up with an adjusted profit per finished minute of about $1.1 per finished minute. And that's a, that is a film that's, you know, 172 minutes long. Stellar. That's, that's pretty great.
2: great. Which, you know, by today's standards, would probably still make it a colossal flop. So. Yeah, right, right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think with all of that said, now is the time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you will see our list of all the films that we have ever ranked on this show. We're going to do it this week. We've got a little trio here. So we're going to rank this film and see where it lands uh, on our list. So first up, we have Heat
0: or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Heat, Heat, please. Heat, heat. Definitely Heat. Definitely. All right, next up, Heat or Never Let Me Go, another speakeasy movie we talked about. Heat. Yeah, it's definitely heat. Heat.
1: Never Let Me Go it was lovely. It, it was
2: lovely, no, it's no but heat. it's not Heat. It's no. I, mean, it's not well, I heat. like it George Clooney, but it's no Heat. So, yeah, you know? right, right. right.
0: All right, next up, Heat or The Matrix. Getting a little tougher here. I'd have to go Heat still.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm Heat. I may say The
0: Matrix, uh, but I don't think it really matters. It would be a Princess of a I feel
2: like Matrix is, uh, you know, it's like you watch and go, that was fun. Okay, I don't need to watch that for a few more years.
0: Okay, uh next up Heat. Oh, this is uh now it's getting real tough. Heat or Children of Men. Oh wow, yeah. that's uh son of a, uh, am <laughs> gonna wow. This is what this is what we call a flick chart hate crime. Oh, this is that's just cruel. Why would you do that? Uh I'm gonna go I'm
2: gonna go children of men, that's I I have such a such an affinity for that movie.
1: Children of men. Yeah, I'm saying to tell of you, men. I'm surprised. I, uh, no, this is, I'm, I'm heat all the way. I know principled loss, okay. uh, but, uh, but I'm definitely heat. They're both great. Yes.
0: Movies. Both great. All right. Heat or snatch. A very fun movie.
1: Heat. I'm, I'm going to go heat.
0: Yeah. I'm going to say heat too.
2: I'm going to say that all quietly. Right. Cause my wife, wa- my wife loves the movie snatch. So If I were to say <laughs> that and she'd hear me, <laughs> I'd be sleeping on the couch. I'm going to go for heat.
0: All right. Uh, heat or casino Royale. We're getting a lot of speakeasy, uh, know, episodes on this one. One after the other. Heat Um, or Casino Royale, oof. Hmm. Oh.
2: I feel like these are kind of unfair because it also depends on your mood, you know? Oh, no,
1: no, no. Let's be clear. They're all unfair. They're categorically (laughs) unfair.
2: Uh, I still, um, kind of one track mine. I'm still going to go with Heat.
1: Heat? (laughs) Heat? I I I can only say this because I've already I've already wrestled with it on my own flick chart. Uh, I am I am heat. Uh,
0: I'm really torn. These are all just brutal. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with heat. Also, although uh, I could say Casino Royale on a different day. And uh, let, next up, heat or Room, the recent uh, the recent uh, yeah. Oscar nominee.
2: Oh, Room. For a second, I thought and I was like, wait, Room or the
0: Room. Oh, <laughs> I was like, that's wait a totally a different experience. <laughs> I was
2: like, wait a second, now we have an intro. Now it's gotten really interesting. <laughs> I'm like, hold on, can we somehow find a world where those two movies coexist together, like some kind of crossover hybrid? Um, Oh,
0: that's just crazy.
2: Again, if there's some YouTuber out there with some amazing skills, here's an opportunity. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go with Heat. I thought Room was a a really beautiful movie, and I loved it. But as triumphant as you feel at the end, the beginning of it is so heart-wrenching. I'm like, I just don't need to feel that bad about myself over and over again.
0: (laughs) Well, Heat has uh, has definitely more of a rewatch factor for me, so I'm going to say Heat.
1: I am Heat as well.
0: All right, next up, Heat. Or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, this is
2: bad. People, you're just torture. Who makes this website, by the way? I need
1: names. Do not, do not question the algorithm. Do not question the algorithm.
2: So like, this is this is how Skynet starts, right? Like the slow right. format?
0: This is um, it, right here.
2: Oh, I'm gonna. Oh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go with Butch Cassidy.
0: I am. I am also Butch Cassidy. All right, I, I'm heat, but uh, Butch Cassidy takes it, and uh, there we are. That really shot up here. We are at number 18 on our flick chart ranking, 18 Ooh. out of 262. So that is a pretty solid spot there. Nice. We also do a, a Letterboxd ranking, Jason, letterboxd.com slash the next reel. This is just out of five stars. I'm guessing that you're going to give this a five out of five.
2: Uh, for heat? Oh, yes. yes. Oh, yes. That's This would definitely be a five out of five for me.
0: Yes, me too. A hearty five stars. Yeah, definitely for me. This is, uh, you know, Michael Mann really at the top of his game. I mean, he's just a stellar filmmaker, and this is just, I think, uh, you know, I'm always torn. I think Collateral may be my favorite Michael Mann film because I just really enjoy that one. But, boy, these two are just so, they're neck and neck.
2: You might be the only other person I have ever met that enjoyed Collateral. <laughs> I get so much grief. I'm like, Collateral is a really good movie. And everyone's like, are you kidding? And I'm like, no, actually, Tom Cruise is really good in it. Like, It's actually, for what it is, actually, I think Collateral is a really good movie and really enjoyable.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I love that movie. I,
2: I, I've stopped saying it out loud to I get so much <laughs> grief about it. So it's become like my little personal, like late at night, I close the blinds and I make sure, you know <laughs> – Make sure the windows are shut so nobody can hear me, you know, in the dark watching collateral on headphones and watch oh, it so in funny. shame.
0: <laughs> well, you can come over and watch it anytime over here. Done now. and done. I Gladly put it on. <laughs> and then we can go give Michael Mann a hug. <laughs> and like, oh, Michael, you need a hug.
2: You need a hug. You also
0: need to put Tone Lock in more movies. Come on. Come on. Yes. yes. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> well, so Jason, thanks for coming and joining us on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you so much, guys. It's been a lot of fun. If, if uh, people want to learn more about you or, or track you down on the internet, internet, do you have a home on the internet where I, people uh, can I dig do. in? And- I have
2: a website that is being redone right now. Not as fast as my agent would like it redone, but it's being redone. It's uh, just uh, dot com. uh Yeah, you can go there and see stuff that I've done and see what i've been up to and
1: well now we we already talked in the introduction uh what you are, are actually up to what do you uh, tell us a little bit about what you're up to and are most excited about right now
2: i'm still out in chicago uh on season five of chicago fire uh and i'll be here uh the season goes all the way until the end of april next year so that's what i'm up to now and uh i'm excited it starts airing in october i'm excited for it to start airing uh, because we do some really amazing things for uh, considering it's network television. We do some pretty amazing things every episode. Uh, so I'm very excited for everybody to see that. And it's just an amazing group of people. So it's it's always cool to, to work with people that you really like and respect who are great at what they do. Uh, and you get to work with them and do really awesome stuff.
0: Do you get to work on the uh, crossover episodes when they roll around? Well, now that there's, there's
2: four shows now. So there's Chicago Fire, Chicago PD... Chicago Med, uh, and they just started shooting the fourth show, which is Chicago Justice, which is a, a legal show. There's like the big advertised crossover episodes, but almost every episode is sort of a mini crossover because we shared cast between shows. So on any, you know, last night we had cast members from one of the other shows in some of our scenes, and we share some of our cast with the other shows. So every week is sort of like little miniature crossovers. Um, and then once or twice, how brilliant is that? It's pretty, it's pretty great. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because being in the middle of it, it's very easy to lose sight of the scope of things. Occasionally I'll step back and go, Oh, this is actually, this is actually four totally different shows playing on different nights on NBC. The four of them combined kind of create this entire little universe of, uh, of characters and stories that carry over between four different shows and all these different cast members.
0: Yeah, talk about world building. I just find that so fascinating.
2: And again, with now they've added this the Chicago Justice, it just keeps getting it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. But yeah, that's what I'm up to now. I'll be doing that until April, at least April of next year, um, and it starts airing in October. Uh, and I'm excited because we, like I said, we we do uh, every week. We get to blow things up and flip fire trucks and do all sorts of cool shit. <laughs>
1: It's a, it's a dream job, man. It is
2: a dream job. I get to go hang out with, I get to like ride on top of fire trucks and blow shit up and <laughs> set things on fire and, you know, like how many people get paid to go like create mayhem and chaos, you know, and then I don't even have to clean it up. That's the best part. I just show up and create and blow things up and orchestrate chaos and then somebody else cleans it up.
1: It's awesome. It's a short That's and awesome. distinguished list. <laughs> that was so fun <laughs> that's awesome man thank you well, really thank you for doing this and, uh, and being a part thank of it we you. sure appreciate your time
2: uh, I was awesome thank you guys
0: thanks so much and for everybody out there we uh, hope you enjoyed the show if you like what you heard follow us on Facebook Twitter Google Plus Instagram Pinterest Letterboxd FlickChart and YouTube and don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and comment it really does help more people find us thanks everybody for tuning in and until next time I've got 30 seconds to drop everything and get out of here. Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point.
1: <laughs> Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort.
0: TheNextReel.com slash Originals. It's a great way to support the show
1: and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to the slash Originals to pick out your next read and dig in today.